Chapter Two of the Lost Cafuzalum by Pauline Ashwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Fisher. Maclare opens his eyes and says, like I am enacting Last Straw, "Have some sense, Lizzie." Then, in a different tone, Ram says he gave you the letter half an hour ago. What letter? My brain suddenly registers a small pale patch been occupying a corner of my retina for the last half hour. It turns out to be a letter postmarked Xenius twenty three. I disembowel it with one jerk. It's from my dad and runs like this. My dear Liz, thank you for your last letter. Glad you're keeping fit, and so am I. I just got a letter from your college saying you will get a degree conferred on you on September the twelfth, and parents, if on earth, will be welcome. Well, Liz, this I gotta see, and Charlie says the same. But the letter says too Terran Authority will not give a permit to visit Earth just for this. So I wangled on to a delegation which is coming to discuss trade with the Department of Commerce. Charlie and I will be arriving on Earth on August the 24th. Liz, it is good to think I shall be seeing you again after four years. There are some things about your future I meant to write to Professor Maclare about, but now I shall be able to talk it over direct. Please give him my regards. Be seeing you, Lizzie girl. Your affectionate dad. J. X. Lee. Dear old dad, after all these years farming with a weather maker on dry dust planet, I want to see his face the first time he sees real rain. Hell's fires and shaders of darkness. I shan't be there. Maclare says, Your father wrote to me saying that he'll be arriving on Earth on 24th August. I take it your letter says the same. I came on a dispatch boat. You can go back on it. Now what is he talking about? Then I get the drift. I say, Look, so Dad will be on Earth before we get back. What difference does that make? You can't let him arrive and find you missing. Well, I admit to a qualm at the thought of Dad let loose on Earth without me, but after all, Uncle Charlie is a born Terry and can keep him in line. Hell, he's old enough to look after himself anyway. You met my dad, I point out. You think J.X. Lee would want any daughter of his backing out of a job so as to hold his hand? I can send him a letter saying I'm off on a job or a test or whatever I please, and hold everything till I get back. What are you doing about people's families on Earth already? Maclare says we were all selected as having families not on Earth at present, and I must go back. I say, like hell I will. He says he is my official guardian and responsible for me. I say he's just as responsible for everyone else on this ship. I spent years and years trying to think up a remark would really get home to Maclare. Well, I've done it now. I say, look, you are tired and worried, and maybe not thinking so well just now. I know this is a very risky job. Don't think I missed that and all. I tried hard to imagine it, like you said, over the speaker. I cannot quite imagine dying, but I know how Dad will feel if I do. I did my level best to scare myself sick. Then I decided it is just plain worth the risk anyway. To work out a thing like this, you have to have a kind of arithmetic. You add in everybody's feelings with the other factors. Then, if you get a plus answer, you forget everything else and go right ahead. I'm not going to think about it any more, because I added up the sum and got the answer, and upsetting my nerves won't help. I guess you worked out the sum too. You decided four million people were worth risking twenty, even if they do have parents, even if they are your students. So they are too, and you gave us all a chance to say no. Well, nothing has altered that. Only now the values look different to you, because you're tired and worried and probably missed breakfast too. Brother, some speech. I wonder what got into me. Maclare is wondering too, or maybe gone to sleep sitting. It is some time before he answers me. Miss Lee, you are deplorably right on one thing at least. I don't know whether I was fit to make such a decision when I made it, but I'm not fit now. As far as you personally are concerned, he trails off looking tireder than ever 
and then picks up suddenly. You are again quite right. I'm every bit as responsible for the other people on board as I am for you. He climbs slowly to his feet and walks out without another word. The door is left open, and I take this as an invitation to freedom and shoot through it in case it was a mistake. No, because Ram is opening doors all along the corridor, and ten of Russet's brightest come pouring out like mercury finding its own level and coalesce in the middle of the floor. The effect of release is such that after four minutes Peter Yang Sen's head appears at the top of the stairway and he says the crew is lifting the deck plates. Will we, for time's sake, go along to the conference room, which is soundproof? The conference room is on the next deck and, like our cabins, shows signs of hasty construction. The soundproofing is there, but the acoustics are kind of muffled and the generator is not boxed in but has cables trailing all over and the fastenings have a strong but temporary look. Otherwise, there is a big table and a lot of chairs and a small projection box in front of each with a note-taker beside. It is maybe this very functional setup, or maybe the dead flatness of our voices in the dampened room, but we do not have so much to talk about any more. We automatically take the places at the table, all at one end, leaving seven vacant chairs near the door. Looking round, I wonder what principle we were selected on. Of my special friends, Eru Wangoa, and Kirsty Lamagor are present, but Lily Chen and Likofo Komombaratse and Jin Lebrun are not. We have Cray Patterson, who is one of my special enemies, but not Blazer Way or Astral Cad. The rest are Pisa Potek, Nick Howard, Arrow Mester, Dilly Dixie, Pavel Kristjanovic, Lenny DiMaggio, and Shootright Crow. Arrow is at the end of the table, opposite the door, and maybe feels this position, puts it up to him to start the discussion. He opens by remarking, So, nobody took the opportunity to withdraw? Cray Patterson lifts his eyebrows ceilingwards and drawls out that the decision was supposed to be a private one. B says, Maybe it did not work out that way. Everyone who learned Morse knows who was on the ship. Anyway, they are all still here, so what does it matter? And McClare would not have picked people who were going to funk it after all. My chair gets a kick on the ankle, which I suppose was meant for B. Aero is six foot five but even his legs do not quite reach. He's the only one of us facing the door. McClare has somehow shed his weariness. He looks stern, but fresh as a daisy. There are four with him. Ram and Peter looking serious, one stranger in Evercleans looking determined to enjoy the party, and another in uniform, looking as though nothing would make him. McClare introduces the strangers as Colonel Delano Smith and Mr. Yardo. They all sit down at the other end of the table. Then he frowns at us and begins like this. Miss Layden is mistaken. You were not selected on any such grounds as she suggests. I may say that I was astonished at the readiness with which you all engaged yourselves to take part in such a desperate gamble, and, seeing that for the last four years I have been trying to persuade you that it is worth while, before making a decision of any importance, to spend a certain amount of thought on it, I was discouraged as well. Oh. The criterion upon which you were selected was a very simple one. As I told you, you were picked not by me, but by a computer, the one in the college office which registers such information as your home address and present whereabouts. You are simply that section of the class which could be picked up without attracting attention, because you all happen to be on holiday by yourselves or with other members of the class, and because your nearest relatives are not on earth at present. Oh well. All of us can see McClare is doing a job of deflation on us for reasons of his own, but it works for all that. He now seems to feel the job is complete and relaxes a bit. I was interested to see that you all, without exception, hit on variations of the same idea. 
It is, of course, the obvious way to deal with the problem. He smiles at us suddenly, and I get mad at myself because I know he is following the rules for introducing a desired state of mind, but I am responding as meant. I'll read you the most succinct expression of it. You may be able to guess the author. Business with bits of paper. Here it is. I quote, Drag in some outsider. Looks like he's going for both sides. They will gang up on him. Yells of laughter and shouts of Lizzie Lee. Even the two strangers produce sympathetic grins. I do not find it so funny as all that myself. Ideas as to the form the outsider should take were more varied. This is a matter I propose to leave to you to work out together, with the assistance of Colonel Delano Smith and Mr. Yardo. Te Wahangoa, you take the chair. Exit McClare. This leaves the two halves of the table eyeing one another. Ram and Peter have been through this kind of session in their time. Now they are leaning back, preparing to watch us work. It is plain we are supposed to impress the abilities of russet near graduates on two strangers, and for some moments we are all occupied taking them in. Colonel Delano Smith is a small, neat guy with a face that has all the muscular machinery for producing an expression. He just doesn't care to use it. Mr. Yardo is taller than any of us except Eru, and flesh is spread very thin on his bones, including his face, which splits now and then in a grin like an affable skeleton. Where the colonel fits is guessable enough. Mr. Yardo is presumably expert at something, but no data on what. Eru rests his hands on the table and says we'd better start. Will somebody kindly outline an idea for making the incognitans gang up? The simpler the better, and it does not matter whether it is workable or not, pulling it to pieces will give us a start. We all wait to see who will rush in. Then I catch Eru's eye and see I am elected clown again. I say, send them a letter postmarked outer space, signed B.E.M., saying we lost our own planet in a Nova and we'll take theirs over in two weeks from Tuesday. Mr. Yardo utters a sharp, ha-ha, but is not seconded. The colonel, having been expressionless all along, becomes more so. Eru says, thanks, Lizzie. He looks across at Cray, who is opposite me. Cray says there are many points on which he might comment. To take only one, two weeks from Tuesday, leaves little time for ganging up. And what happens when the BEMs fail to come? We're suddenly back in the atmosphere of a seminar. Eru's glance moves to Pizapotec, sitting next to Cray, and he says, These BEMs who lost their home planet in a Nova, how many ships have they? Without a base, they cannot be very dangerous unless their fleet is very large. It goes round the table. Pavel. How would the BEMs learn to write? Nick. How are they supposed to know that Incognito is inhabited? How do they address the letter? The Crow. Huh. Why write letters? Invaders just invade. Kirsty. We don't want to inflame these people against alien races. We might find one some day. It seems to me this idea might have all sorts of undesirable by-products. Suppose each side regards it as a ruse on the part of the other. We might touch off a war instead of preventing it. Suppose they turn over to preparations for repelling the invaders to an extent that cripples their economy. Suppose a panic starts. Dilly. Say, Mr. Chairman, is there any of this idea left at all? How about an interim summary? Eru coughs to get a moment for thought, then says, In brief, the problem is to provide a menace against which the two groups will be forced to unite. It must have certain characteristics. It must be sufficiently far off in time for the threat to last several years long enough to force them into a real combination. It must obviously be a plausible danger, and they must get to know of it in a plausible manner. Invasion from outside is the only threat so far suggested. 
It must be a limited threat. That is, it must appear to come from one well-defined group. The rest of the universe should appear benevolent or neutral. He just stops, rather as though there's something else to come. While the rest of us are waiting, B sticks her oar in to the following effect. Yes, but look, suppose this goes wrong. It's all very well to make plans, but suppose we get some of Kirsty's side effects just the same. Well, what I mean is, suppose it makes the mess worse instead of better. We want some way we can sort of switch it off again. Look, this is just an illustration, but suppose the menace was pirates. If it went wrong, we could have an Earthship make some official contact, and they could just happen to say, By the way, have you seen anything of some pirates? Earthfleet wiped them up in this sector about six months ago. That would mean the whole crew conniving, so it won't do, but you see what I mean. There's a bit of a silence. Then Arrow says, I think we should start fresh. We've had criticisms of Lizzie's suggestion, which was not perhaps wholly serious. And, as Dilly says, there is little of it left, except the idea of a threat of invasion. The idea of an alien intelligent race has objections, and would be very difficult to fake. The invaders must be men from another planet, another unknown one. But how do the people of Incognita come to know they exist? More silence. Then I hear my own voice speaking, although it is my intention to keep quiet for once. It sounds kind of creaky, and it says, A ship? A crashed ship from outside? Whereupon another voice says, Really? Am I expected to swallow this? We had just forgotten the colonel, not to mention Mr. Yardo, who contributes another ha-ha. So this reminder comes as a slight shock. Nor do we see what he's talking about. But this he proceeds to explain. I don't know why Maclare thought it necessary to stage this discussion. I'm already acquainted with his plan and have had orders to cooperate. I have expressed my opinion on using undergraduates in a job like this and have been overruled. If he or you imagine that priming you to bring out his ideas like this is going to reconcile me to the whole business, you are mistaken. He might have chosen a more suitable mouthpiece than that child with the curly hair. Here everybody wishes to reply at once. The resulting jam produces a moment of silence, and I get in first. As for curly hair, I am rising twenty-four, and I was only saying what we all thought. If we have the same ideas as Maclare, that is because he taught us for four years. How else would you set about it anyway? My fellow students pick up their stylers and tap solemnly three times on the table. This is the russet equivalent of here, here, and the colonel is surprised. Eru says coldly, This discussion has not been rehearsed. As Lizzie, as Miss Lee says, we have been working and thinking together for four years and have been taught by the same people. Very well, says Delano Smith testily. Tell me this, please. Do you regard this idea as practicable? Cray tilts his chair back and remarks to the ceiling, This is rather a farce. I suppose we had to go through our paces for the Colonel's benefit, and Mr. Yardo's, of course. But can't we be briefed properly now? What do you mean by that? snaps the Colonel. It's been obvious right along, says Cray, balancing his styler on one forefinger. So obvious none of us has bothered to mention it, that accepting the normal limitations of mass time, the idea of interfering in incognito was doomed before it began. No conventional ship would have much hope of arriving before war broke out, and if it did, it couldn't do anything effective. Therefore, I assume this is not a conventional ship. I might accept that the government has sent us out in a futile attempt to do the impossible, but I wouldn't believe that of Maclare. Cray is the only Terry I know acts like an outsider's idea of one. Many find this difficult to take, and the Colonel is plainly one of them. Eru intervenes quickly. I imagine we all realise that. Anyway, this ship is obviously not a conventional model. 
If you accept the usual mass-time relationship between the rate of transition and the fifth power of the apparent acceleration, we must have reached about four times the maximum already. Ram, says B suddenly, what did you do to stop the hotel scope registering the little ship you picked up me and Lizzie in? Everybody cuts in with something they have noticed about the capabilities of the ship, or the hoppers, and Lenny starts hammering on the table and chanting, Brief! 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 And others are just starting to join in, when Arrow bangs on the table and glares us all down. Having got silence, he says very quietly, Colonel Delano Smith, I doubt whether this discussion can usefully proceed without a good deal more information. Will you take over? The Colonel looks round at all the eager, earnest, interested maps hastily put on for his benefit, and decides to take the plunge. Very well. I suppose it is. Very well. The decision to use students from Russet was made at a very high level, and I suppose, instead of saying very well again, he shrugs his shoulders and gets down to it. The report from the planet we decided to call Incognita was received 31 days ago. The Department of Spatial Affairs has certain resources which are not generally known. This ship is one of them. She works on a modified version of mass time, which enables her to use about a thousand channels instead of the normal limit of 200. For good and sufficient reason, this has not been generally released. Pause while we are silently dared to doubt the virtue and sufficiency of these reasons, which personally I do not. To travel to Incognita direct would take about 15 days by the shortest route. We shall take 18 days, as we shall have to make a short detour. But presumably we will only take 15 days back. Hurrah! We can spend a week round the planet and still be back in time for commemoration. We shall skip maybe a million awkward questions, and I shall not disappoint Dad. It is plain the Colonel is not filled with joy. Far from it. He did not enjoy revealing a departmental secret, however obvious. But he likes the next item even less. We shall detour to an uninhabited system twelve days' transit time from here, and make contact with another ship, the Gilgamesh. At which Lenny DiMaggio, who's been silent till now, brings his fist down on the table and exclaims, You can't! Lenny is much upset for some reason. Delano Smith gives him a peculiar look and says what does he know about it, and Lenny starts to stutter. Cray remarks that Lenny's childhood hobby appears to have been spaceships, and he suffers from arrested development. B says it is well known that Lenny is mad about the Space Force, and why not? It seems to have uses. Go on and tell us, Lenny. Lenny says, G Gilgamesh was lost 300 years ago. A flaw in that statement, says Cray after a pause, is that this may be another ship of the same name. No, says the Colonel. Explorer-class cruiser. They went out of service 280 years back. The Space Force, I remember, does not reuse names of lost ships. Some say very proper feeling. Some say superstitious rot. B says, when was she found again? Lenny says it was just 37 revolutions of his native planet, which means for 53 terrestrial years ago. She was found by an interplanetary scout called Crusoe. Judging by the Colonel's expression... This data is classified. He does not know that Lemmy's family come out of one of the oldest settled planets and are space-goers to a man, woman and juvenile. They pick up ship gossip the way others hear about the relations of people next door. Lenny goes on to say that the Explorer class were the first official exploration ships sent out from Earth when the Terries decided to find out what happened to the colonies formed during the Exodus. Gilgamesh was the first to make contact with Garuda, Legba, Lister, Corbis and Antelope. She vanished on her third voyage. Where was she found? asked Eru. Near the pole of an uninhabited planet. 
Maybe I shouldn't say where, because that may be secret. But the rest's history if you know where to look. Maybe the colonel approves this discretion. Anyway, his face thaws very slightly, unless I'm imagining it. Gilgamesh crashed, he says. Near as we can make out from the log. She visited the Seleucus system. That's a swarm of sun. Fifty-seven planets, three settled, and any number of fragments. The navigator calculated that after a few more revolutions, one of the fragments was going to crash on an inhabited planet. Might have done a lot of damage. They decided to tow it out of the way. Grappling beams hadn't been invented. They thought they could use mass time on it on a kind of reverse thrust. Throw it off course. Mass time wasn't so well understood then. Bit off more than they could chew. Set up a topological relationship that drained all the free energy out of the system. Drive, heating system, everything. She had emergency circuits. When the engines came on again, they took over. Landed the ship, more or less, on the nearest planet. Too late, of course. Heating system never came on. There was a safety switch that had to be thrown by hand. She was embedded in ice when she was found. Hull breached at one point. No other serious damage. And the crew? Dilly ought to know better than that. Lost with all hands, says the colonel. How about weapons? We're all startled. Cray is looking whitish like the rest of us, but maintains his normal manner, i.e. offensive affectation while pointing out that Gilgamesh can hardly be taken for a menace unless she has some means of aggression about her. Lenny says, the explorer class were all armed. Fine, says Cray. Presumably the weapons will be thoroughly obsolete and recognisable only to a historian. Lenny says the construction of no weapon developed by the Space Department has ever been released, making it plain that anyone but a nitwit knows that already. Arrow and Kirsty have been busy for some time writing notes to each other, and she now gives a small sharp cough, having collected our attention, utters the following address. There is a point we seem to have missed. If I may recapitulate, the idea is to take this ship Gilgamesh to Incognita and make it appear as though she had crashed there while attempting to land. I understand that the ship has been buried in the polar cap, though she must have been melted out of it if the people on Crusoe examined the engines. Of course, the cold. All the same, there may have been, well, changes. Or when we thaw the ship out again. I find I am swallowing good and hard, and several of the others look sick, especially Lenny. Lenny has his eyes fixed on the colonel. It is not prescience, but a slight sideways movement of the colonel's eye causes him to blurt out, What is he doing here? meaning Mr. Yardo, who seems to have been asleep for some time, with his eyes open and grinning like the spikes on a dog collar. The colonel gives him another sideways look and says, Mr. Yardo is an expert on the rehabilitation of space-packed materials. This is stuff transported in unpowered hulls, towed by grappling beams. The hulls are open to space, hence no need for refrigeration, and the contents are transferred to specially equipped orbital stations before being taken down to the planet. But... Mr. Yardo comes to life at the sound of his name, and his grin widens alarmingly. Especially meat, he says. End of chapter 2